2 Timothy chapter 4. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have this privilege to consider your inspired word. We know that it is true. We know that it is right. We know that it is needed, that it's powerful, it's effective, it's dynamic. And it is a way in which we have the privilege now of worshiping you. Help us to yield ourselves to you, humbling ourselves first to you and under the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you know that teams are not awarded a trophy when they've won the third game of a seven-game series? Seven games. In order to win, you have to win four games, more games than the other team can win. Last year, the Golden State Warriors of the National Basketball Association won a record 73 regular season games. For those of you that don't know anything about basketball, that means that they won 73 and only lost nine. There's an 82-game regular season. That's an incredible feat. They started to roll through the playoffs, and as they got closer and closer to the NBA championship, there were comparisons that began to be made between the 2016 Golden State Warriors and the Michael Jordan-led Chicago Bulls that had won 72 games, which means they lost 10, and won the championship. That group of players, uh, led by Michael Jordan, won six championships, one of the years, they won 72 games. Well, there, these comparisons were being made, and, and it looked more and more like the Golden State Warriors were going to surpass that record and, and, and be considered one of the greatest teams in NBA history. As the NBA championship series went along, they had amassed a three-games-to-one advantage. They just needed to win one more game. The fact that I'm bringing this up like this tells you something unique may have happened. In NBA history, there had never been a, an NBA Finals that had uh, seen a team that was down three games to one overcome that disadvantage and win until 2016 and the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James came storming back, much to, much, to many of our chagrin, and ended up beating the Golden State Warriors. Three games, seems like everything's going great. No championship till you win the fourth game. With a little bit more of a local flavor, back in 2004, you may remember, after 86 years of horror for Boston Red Sox fans, the Boston Red Sox were down three games to zero in the American League Championship Series to everyone's favorite opposition, the New York Yankees. Three games to none. No team had ever come back from a three games to zero deficit until 2004, and then the Red Sox ended up beating them, blah, 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 blah. We know the rest of the story. What's the moral of the story? Oh, almost there. I can taste it. Until you win the fourth game in a seven-game series, you get no award. In fact, if you win three games and are have only lost one, and then you go on to lose, it may in fact be a little bit worse than if you just lost four straight games. What's the moral of the story? Finish the job. Finish the job. Three games is not enough. 
Paul left a legacy behind him for others to observe, to learn from, and to follow. Paul didn't think that mediocre was good enough. He didn't think three-quarters of the way there was good enough. He didn't settle for second-place effort. Listen to these statements from Paul, first of all, from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You wonder why I use athletic illustrations all the time. Well, you can blame me first, and then you can blame Paul second, because he does the same thing. He doesn't use maybe as much specificity as I might use because I enjoy talking about it and thinking about sports. But he he does bring up athletics in the course of his communication. Here in 1 Corinthians 9, he says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I'm not taking the the side streets. I'm going straight down the pathway. I'm going to the, the tape. I don't run aimlessly, and I do not box as one beating the air. If I'm going to go in and and I'm going to throw a punch, it's going to be a straight jab to your face. It's, It's going to be a straight punch here and maybe a, a nice uppercut using all the, the, the energy that I can muster from my trunks, okay? Uh, I, I want to give you, I, I'm not going to just kind of, oh, you know, you see some people boxing like this, and you think, well, you kind of look like a little bit of a, hmm, what's, politically correct, I want to think, you look um, less than stellar athletically with throwing those little sissy jabs, I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't help it, I had to, come on, g- give me some more. I don't box aimlessly, beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What is he talking about? He's saying, listen, if you're going to do something, do it. Do it until the end. Don't do it half-heartedly. Don't do it um, intermittently. Go all out. Finish the task. He says in the book of Philippians, in the process of this, he does use a a running illustration. He says, beginning in verse 12 of Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in any way or in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What's he saying again? God saved me. Jesus saved me. He made me his own. And he did it for a particular reason. And I have not attained unto that that thing yet. So I'm not going to look back. I'm just going to look forward. 
I'm not going to be impeded by what has taken place. I'm going to stretch forward. I'm going to, I'm going to, in every ounce of my being, in every way, mind, soul, and body, I am going to strain toward the reason that Jesus Christ has made me his own. He says, I am not half-hearted in this. All out. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, earlier David uh, in our series had, had covered this. Paul uses an illustration of an athlete in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So we, we, we have to do these things in, in line with what God has revealed. God has called us for something to flippantly half-heartedly, lazily go through life is not in accordance with the plan. Paul was no slouch. He didn't view the Christian life as a life without effort. He spoke of a diligence similar to the effort elicited by Peter in 2 Peter 1. So two things in mind here. I want to point you to something Paul said, and I want to direct your attention to what Peter has written as well. So I'm going to have you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to come back to 2 Timothy in just a moment. But 2 Peter chapter 1. And while you're turning to 2 Peter 1, I want you to hear something that Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that is really, really important. He says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. If he stopped right there, you could interpret that in a number of ways. Hey, this is just who I am, brother. This is who I am. If it just was left there, we could say, hey, just, just steamroll through life. No problem, whatever. However you want to run it, it's fine. That's not what he says, though. By the grace of God, God's grace has made me what I am, he says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. It wasn't empty. God didn't give me his grace and it, and it just spilled out for nothing. He said, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. If he stopped right there, we would have some real questions, right? Okay, well, so in the Christian life, if I try really hard, God will reward me and everything will be great. That's, he doesn't stop there either. He goes on. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, or that is with me. What is he saying? When God's grace is evidenced in our lives there is within us this drive toward Christ, this drive toward the scriptures, this drive toward why God redeemed me. Why did he save me? So I could just lollygag through life like every other slouch that's, that's ever lived? That's not what he's done. He saved me and given his grace, and he wants to move me in a direction so I might reflect the very character and nature of Jesus Christ himself. So I would be a manifestation of Jesus Christ here and now. Well, Peter also spoke of this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Take a look there with me. I have written on the, on the screen, we're going to start in verse 5, but I, I want to start there just so we can bounce backwards. In verse 5 it says, for this very reason. So if we read from, from here on and ignore what comes before, we're going to, we're going to have some error in our, our reading. For this very reason points us backwards, and we want to see what that backwards is. Take a look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory 
and excellent. So God has granted to us. That's a grace gift. He has graced us with everything that we need to live a life and a life that reveals godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him, through understanding who he is, the one who called us, what did he call us to? His own glory and excellence. He didn't call us to be lazy gluttons. He didn't call us to be uh, defeated and broken and staying there. He called us to recognize our brokenness and our fallenness. And he has called to redeem that and to, by his grace, transform that into his image. Look at verse 4. By which, these promises, this understanding of God's calling, by which he has granted to us, there's another grace gift, he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, his, through what? His precious and very great promises, you might become, what? Partakers of the divine nature. Can you hear the significance of what he just said in verse 4? God has made great and precious promises. This is a divine grace gift. Great and precious promises. That through these promises that God has done, he has united us together, made us partakers of the divine nature. Well, how is that? Well, his spirit dwells within us. We're united to Jesus Christ. Where Jesus is, I am. When Jesus died on the cross, I was there. When Jesus was laid in the tomb, I was there. When Jesus was raised from the, the dead, I was there. When Jesus ascended to heaven, I was there. As Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father, guess what? I'm there. Why? He's united me together with Jesus Christ. I'm a partaker of the divine nature. This is, this is unfathomable. This is what God has done by his grace. He's taken us, and as, as he says here at the end of verse 4, having escaped, having been delivered from the corruption that is in the world, because of sinful desire. Okay, so he's telling us, God has graced you, God has graced you, God has graced you. God has graced you and given you promises. God has graced you and delivered you from corruption. God has graced you and, and made you a partaker of the divine nature. God has graced you and he's, he's called you to glory and excellence. Verse 5. For this very reason, because of these grace gifts, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Stop right there for a second. If you were to take that list and try to compare, where else do you find things like this? Class? Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. He hasn't moved us away from grace in verses 5 through 7. He's grounded us in grace in verses 3 through 4 and tells us what grace produces in verses 5 through 7. So grace is at work within us and grace, ready, is not lazy. This is what Paul said. I am what I am by the grace of God. And he doesn't say, so I don't care about what else happens. He said, no, God's grace has been at work in me, and it was not in vain. In fact, I have labored more abundantly than anyone else, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God within me. God's grace works. And that's what he's telling us here in verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 8 and following. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so there's more and more exhibitions of God's fruitfulness in your life, they keep you from being effective, excuse me, Uh, from being ineffective 
or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that tell you? Well, you can be unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can learn all kinds of truth about the Bible and still be unfruitful. What's the problem? I have not yielded myself to God. God's grace, though granted to me, is not in operation within me. When God's grace is in operation within me, it looks like, ready? It looks like I'm working really hard. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? Yes? It was not me, but the grace of God which was working in me. So it looks like, here's Paul, this diligent laborer. Yes, because God's grace is at work within him. Yes? And here, this is what Peter's saying. You've been granted these gracious gifts of God. Because of this grace, it, let it work out. Let it work out. And, and, and when it does, it's going gonna, it's gonna to give the appearance, then the truthfulness, that the effort is coming out. But what is the effort? Lord, I'm yours. I need to know your word. I want to know you more. I want your, your fruit to be evidenced in my life. And when I recognize my sinfulness, what do I do? Well, grace of God. No. I said, God, this is not what you want. Uh, here I am getting in the way again. Here I am stumbling again and thwarting what your, what your grace wants to do in my life again. And so we, we repent. We confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know what happens? God's grace is at work again. Well, let's read a little further. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. That's external, right? Your calling comes from God. Your election comes from God. Confirm what God is doing. The, this yieldedness to the grace of God dis- depicts God's work in your life. For if you practice these things or these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be, will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? That God's grace working in us prepares us for a glorious entrance into heaven. A life lived under the surrender to the Spirit of God will look like a life in diligent pursuit of holiness. The result of his work accomplished is by God's grace and it results in a glorious entrance into God's eternal kingdom. In contrast to that, a life lived with no concern for God's holiness is a life lived in opposition to God's grace, first of all. And if you're living in opposition to God's grace, you're living in opposition to the one who gives it. A life lived in opposition to God's holiness is a life lived in opposition to God himself. Listen to what Paul says as you turn back to 2 Timothy. Turn back to 2 Timothy, and I want to remind you of another text of Scripture in Philippians. In Philippians 2, we're familiar with this, I, I trust, In verse 12, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And he makes this statement, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not telling you in this passage to say, Work really hard for your salvation. That is not what he says. He says, Work out your salvation. Let your salvation that God has given you, he's granted to you, work its way to the outside so that others can see the, sal- the saving work of God. How do I know that that's the interpretation? Because verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will 
and to work, will and to do, in other translations, for his good pleasure. What, what is the context here? What is, what's, what's being said? God saves us. He, he, he rescues us. He gives us unfathomable doses of grace. And that grace changes us. That grace works in us and works out through us. This is the testimony of Scripture, of Peter, of Paul, of John, of James. This is the testimony of the New Testament. That God is the Redeemer. That God is the Saver. And that God is the one who endows us with grace. And that grace changes us. What is our responsibility? To come under. To come under the truthfulness of the Word. And to allow God's grace to do His work. When we find ourselves in competition with that, we're wrong. Right? No one should feel good about living in opposition to God. No one says, well, that's just my, own, my, my unsaved, or that's my old man, he's winning again. And we like look at it like, no big deal. No. When we recognize our old man ruling us, what do we say? Well, here I am, acting as if I'm unsaved. I'm, I'm violating what Paul told the Ephesians when he says, not to walk in the futility of my mind like the rest of the Gentiles do. What am I thinking? But a believer recognizes when we're walking in opposition to God's grace, there's something wrong. And so we confess our sin. We repent. We come back under the truthfulness of the word and the power of God's grace through the Spirit, and God works in us. And so, with that being said, with that in mind, let us read our text for this morning, which is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Here, Paul writes... For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This testimony of Paul with implicit charges comes on the heels of Paul charging Timothy to fulfill his ministry in verse 5. He said, fulfill your ministry. He barks it out. He's probably not. He's telling Timothy, fulfill your ministry. And then he goes on to say, I'm passing the baton. My earthly ministry, my earthly journey is about to be done. Notice this is not retirement. This is not retirement, but eternity that is awaiting Paul. He fought to the end. He lived for God till the end. He served God till the end. He proclaimed the gospel to the end. We want to grasp this morning three main lessons about ministry from Paul's statements here. First of all, Ministry mandates sacrifice. Ministry mandates sacrifice. Look at verse 6 again. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Ministry is sacrifice. The word ministry in verse 5 is the word diakonia, which means service. 
sacrifice. Diakonia relates to meeting the needs of others or serving others. In verse 6, Paul speaks about the end of his life in these terms. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. This is happening. Now, he had mentioned about a potential of this happening at another time in his life. You remember in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, he said this, even if I am to be poured out, In case this does take place, if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. Is there there a lot of feedback right now? I'm hearing myself loudly in my ears. No? Okay, it's just me. Something's wrong with me. If I fall over, come and pick me up and someone finish the sermon for me. The sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. In other words, if, if my life is taken... Okay, rejoice. Don't despair. It's not a problem. I have no problem pouring my life out. And there's a picture that's being portrayed in both 2 Timothy 4.6 and Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17. The Old Testament saints, the people of Israel, the people of God, they would come to the, the tabernacle or the temple and they would bring sacrifices, animal sacrifices. And they would give this Um, whether it be a a lamb or a ram, a bullock, whatever the case may be, and and they offered this. With it, they would also make an offering of fine flour mixed with oil and wine. And all of this was, was poured out. And according to Numbers 15... When this takes place, the sacrifice to God, a free will offering that comes with fine flour, not junk flour, not the leftover flour, but fine flour mixed with expensive oil and and good wine. When when this is offered to God, it ascends as a pleasing aroma. And this is the imagery that Paul is picking up on, saying, you know that that lamb, you know that that fine flour, that oil and that that wine that that was offered up? That's me. It's being poured out. These offerings were part of the worshipful, relational, sacrificial dealings between God's people and God. In the bigger picture, those offerings were pointing to the people of uh, the people of God to the ultimate sacrifice that would come through the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. That was the what all of it was pointing us to. There was there was a full and final and perfect, ultimate sacrifice that was going to be made. It's the very Son of God Himself, this pure and perfect man who was also God, laying His life down. It was fully satisfactory to God. And it was a pleasing aroma to God. That's what is we're pointed to. So you've got these Old Testament sacrifices pointing us to Christ. Christ comes and fulfills this. Everyone knows at this point, everyone that knows the Scriptures, everyone that knows God's plan knows, okay, that's the end of the sacrificial system as we know it. As we come into the New Testament, instead now of bringing an offering to God, ready? We are the offering. Oh God, what can I give you? Look, oh, I don't have my wallet with me. Well, I have my phone. Here God, take this. Uh, here, here's my, my wallet. Here, take one-tenth of this. Here, oh, you need one-tenth of my time? Sure, here's one-tenth of this. Oh, you, you, wanna, you want me to dedicate a certain point, part of my week to you? Oh, sure, here's this. Negative, folks. That's not it. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your time. And he doesn't need your service. 
if, if you and I don't cry out about the Son of God, he can make the stones cry out. Okay, So, so we're, not, we're not like desperately needed. What does God want? Um, not what you have, but you. He wants you. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what your life was like growing up. I would imagine with the people that are here, listening, watching, whatever, probably there are a number of us that found no one that wanted them. Kind of in the way. Kind of a nuisance. And here we have in Scripture the greatest of all God wanting you. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty humbling. That's pretty fulfilling. Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, according to the mercies of God, because of all that God has done for you, present your life. Lay it down. Present your life as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship or reasonable service. He says, just lay your life down. God doesn't need me. He wants me. That's kind of crazy. And Paul says, I'm laying my life down. And our laying our lives down, our presentation of ourselves to God, as is depicted in 2 Timothy 4, 6, reminds us of another charge that Paul made to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 5, 1 and following. He said, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved, as loved children. Follow God, imitate God, demonstrate God, follow his ways as loved children and walk in love as the same way that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Well, what was that? It was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Here's Paul saying, I am already being poured out. Paul speaks of pouring his life out as an offering. This is, this is what he has in mind. His offering is all that he is. He further describes that it was his final offering. It was the last one he had to give. Because he says back in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, the time of my departure has come. It's a, it's a neat little word picture that he gives. It has the idea of, of pulling up the tent pegs or pulling the anchor up from the boat. It has the idea of sailing away. <laughs> I'm out of here, is really what he's saying. The time of my ahoy mateys has come. I'm taking off. See you later. He didn't say, see, I don't want to be you. He said, no, no, I'm going. The, the, the pathway, the difficulty, the challenge, it was worth it. Now you take it, you do it. Knowing the life of Paul and the difficulties he faced, one would, would consider speaking to someone that he loved so much as Timothy. You might say, listen, buddy, I gave so much and I got nothing in return. Don't waste your time. That's not how we ended it. He's told everyone that would read his letters to the churches, hey, I spent a night and a day in the deep. Three times I received 40 lashes from, uh, from, from people, save one. I, I, was, I was over and over dealing with the difficulty and, and ridiculousness of people. Because after he talks about all the bad things that happened to him physically, he says, oh, and above all of this, the care of the churches. 
people and their problems and their pettiness and their, their baggage that they bring. And yet at the end of his life, he says, Timothy, I'm, I'm taken off now. You endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Did he think it was worth it? He sure did. Ministry mandates sacrifice. The end will come for all of us. Are you ready? Are you ready? The Bible tells us that it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. How can I know I'm ready? Have you yielded to Christ? Have you come to recognize the the truthfulness of the word and how Jesus Christ came to pay for your sin? He gave his life as an offering so you might have your sin forgiven forever and have his righteousness forever and have an eternal relationship with God where you would one day be in his presence without interruption, without the baggage of sin, without turmoil, but instead joy and rejoicing forever. Are, are, are you ready? The day might come for you. We, we, we think, oh yes, well, well, Moses said we get 70 or perhaps 80 years. Well, not everyone does. Some people get longer. I'm happy for you unless you don't want to be here anymore, then I then kind of feel sad for you. I know, I've met some people that have lived longer than they wanted to. It's pretty sad for them. It's like, man, I wish, I wish the Lord would take you. He must have some reason for you. And I've met people that, that didn't make it nearly as far as we all thought they would and hoped they would. Moses said, 70 or 80 years, what are we going to do during those 70 or 80 years? Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Are you floating through life? Paul's example was to pour your life out. Pour your life out. Are you willing to sacrifice it all? Or just a little piece? Little snippets here and there when it's convenient. Maybe, maybe little minor inconveniences. Or is your, are, are you all in? Paul, he, he's, he's really demonstrating that we should be all in. What sacrifices are you making right now? Well, I can't answer that for you. Are you laying your life down for the sake of what God's called you to do? I can't answer that for you. You've got to answer it. Paul says, I'm already being poured out. The time of my departure has come. I think that demonstrates that ministry mandates sacrifice. Secondly, as we move to verse 7, ministry is not about the minister. Ministry is not about the minister. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He doesn't say that, just so you know. I'll tell you why I said that in just a second. This, this second concept is very much related to this ministry of sacrifice. Too often we get caught up in our own world, our own family, our own career, our own house, our own blah, 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 blah. There was a song that... Um, I, I found this out uh, just recently. 75 weeks, it was number one in the United Kingdom. Not recently. I'll read you the words. I'm not going to sing it, though you would probably be quite entertained if I would sing it. For what is a man, what has he got, if not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it. My way. You heard that one before, some of you. Some of you that are older than 15 or so. It, it's, it was a popular song, right? 75 weeks on top in, in the UK. I don't know how long it was on top in the United States, but whatever. I did it my way. This is, this is so... It, it makes sense that it would be number one, doesn't it, in this world? 
Yes, I did it my way. He goes over and over. Really great verses of the same nonsense. I did it my way. 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 Oh, good on you. It's a nice Australian thing. Great job. Have, 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 have a great time with that I did it my way thing. If you listen to the literal wording of Paul, what Paul says, listen to what he actually says. Now, I'm not saying that the interpreters gave us a bad, or the translators gave us a bad translation. I just don't think it emphasizes properly. Here's what he actually wrote. The good fight I have fought. The race I have finished. The faith I have kept. Not my faith and my race and my fight. Paul labored for something much bigger than himself. And it wasn't about personal ambition. It's easy to get caught up in success syndrome. It's easy to envy someone who is getting more attention. It's important to recognize that it is the church of Jesus Christ, not our own church. We didn't labor and and bring people to ourselves because we shed our blood. No. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus gave his own blood to purchase our redemption. It's Jesus' church, not ours. Not my fight. Not my race. Not my faith. It is his, his, and his. Why does he liken ministry to a fight? He uses this term fight five times. Paul's ministry was constantly under attack. Why? Well, let's just break it down simply. The world does not like the light of the gospel. Is that fair to say? All right. Even more fair to say is Satan hates hates the light of the gospel. It's no wonder that he was under attack. People not liking the message is not the test of the message. Right? Accepting, you know, the acceptability of the message is not the test of the message. What's the test? Does it say what God says? If it does, good job. If it doesn't, bad job. Pretty simple, right? Thus says the Lord. That is the ultimate measure. Remember, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers of darkness. We need to keep this in mind when people are opposing our message. It's easy for us to to fight the people. Know what is behind this. Don't fight the wrong fight. The fight is not with that person. The fight is not with even the people of the world. The fight is much deeper, much more real than that. And it's one you can't win with big fists and strong muscles. It's only, it's only one yielded to the grace of God. This is why when Paul told us about this fight, he told us to put on the spiritual armor, not physical armor. Not take out your Bible and bash people with it, but instead to yield yourself to the Spirit, praying always with all prayer and supplication for all the saints. He's, he's given us wise instructions He's inspired of, of God, which is why it's so wise. The race, race I have finished. Paul desired to finish the task that was entrusted to him. In Acts chapter 20, as he was telling the, the Ephesian elders, his last address to them in their presence, he says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He said, I want, to, I want to do what God's called me to do. Is that your thought? 
it's easy, it's easy to be diverted from this. This message is not just for pastors. This is for the everyone's. What has your attention? What's driving your train? It's so easy to get caught up in work and, and family and this event and that event and all these things that, that are important that you have to do. But is that what's driving you somewhere? Or do you recognize you've received from the Lord this great ministry, gospel ministry? It's for everyone that knows Christ. Then he says, the faith I have kept. No matter what came Paul's way, he didn't lose faith. That's good. I don't think that's really the depths of what he's saying at here. I think more specifically, when you look at the, his discussion of having kept the faith, he's talking more about there's been an entrustment, a stewardship of the gospel committed to him. You see it in Ephesians chapter 3. You remember the, the letter to Jude, the small little letter? Don't forget about it. It's packed. It's absolutely packed with the gospel and truth. It says in Jude 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, the faith, the whole thing that was once for all delivered to the saints. This charge is given to the church. The faith. Keep the faith. Understand the faith. Contend for the faith. Strive for the faith. Why? Well, I think it reminds us of something that Jesus mentioned. He posed a question um, recorded in Luke chapter 18. When the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on earth? It says faith on the screen. It's literally the faith. Will he find the faith on the earth? Why would he ask such a question? Well, the faith has been entrusted to the church. We're the pillar and ground of the truth. We're to earnestly contend for the faith. And so I think when you put the faith in the hands of people, then you know there's a possibility that things will go terribly amok. I don't think he actually questioned whether he would find the faith on the earth. I think that he was trying to cause us to question whether we would find the faith on the earth. Because honestly, though God has entrusted to the church the faith, who is he really going to guarantee the faith by? Is he going to leave that to me and whether I'm going to be faithful or not? I'm thinking not. I'm thinking he's going to entrust that to someone he can really trust, named himself, right? So I don't think Jesus was actually wondering, well, when, he, when I come, will it, will it be here? He was not that. Just he wants us to think, will you keep the faith? Will the faith be kept? Will, will you pass it on to the next generation? Paul says, I... I, by God's grace, have kept the faith. Isn't that what gospel ministry is about? Passing the, gener- uh, the gospel to the next generation. It's what Paul charged Timothy with in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to what? Faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. Entrust it to others in the next generation. And, 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 it, and it passes on. And you know what? Lo and behold, It worked. Didn't it? Here we are in 21st century, still preaching the same texts of Scripture that Paul entrusted to Timothy, that God entrusted to the church. Here we are doing the same thing. Why? To pass it on. To pass it on. God's entrusted us with something. We will keep that trust and we'll communicate that trust. Ministry, mandate, sacrifice, 
Ministry is not about the minister. Thirdly and lastly, and I'll try to do this quickly. There's so much to say on this. Ministry yields the ultimate prize. Ministry yields the ultimate prize. Verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So let's just ponder this for a few minutes. The Bible speaks of reward at the end for God's people. It is spoken of in various ways, and I'll just mention a few of them. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Jesus challenged us to think of this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break through or break in and steal. So what he's telling us, don't, don't, don't fully invest just in this life because this one, you're going to have things, it's going to come and go. Invest in glory. He says in, uh, earlier in Matthew chapter 6, he does this three times, one with um, with giving, one with prayer, and one with fasting. We're just going to look one sample. Matthew 6, verses 3 through 4, he says this, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will what? Reward you. And then later he says he'll reward you openly. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 to, um, to train himself or to be trained in godliness. Why? Because godliness is profitable both in this life and the next. What does he mean? Well, there's benefits now and forever. This concept of, uh, is noteworthy because it spans both time and eternity. Paul made similar statements concerning some earthly benefits uh, to ministry. In, in uh, two, two letters, he talks about the Thessalonian believers and the Philippian believers. And he says... You are my joy and crown. He says it both in, in Philippians 4.1. You can see that flash. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. He ends with, for you are our glory and joy. I want you to think about this for just a minute. Is he calling these churches his little trophies? Oh, look, my little trophy. I won this when I won you to Jesus. Is that what he's getting at? Sometimes that's the way... People think and, and communicate about their own ministries. Oh, I've won blah, blah, blah to Christ. So many people have gone into ministry under my ministry. Blah, 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 blah. Thanks. And if you didn't come, guess what? God would have done it through someone else. Stop thinking about yourself as the, the greatest gift. There's only one great gift. His name is Jesus. However, in the process of ministering, to see a life transformed before your eyes, to see God doing a work in someone's life through the word, gives joy and rejoicing to our soul. And it's like a little gift of God's grace in the here and now to keep us moving forward. So, while we don't ever rejoice in ourselves, what we recognize is that God is the source of blessing and he gives tangible results to the work of the gospel. Paul spoke of it in the book of Corinthians that they were his letter of commendation. 
So there is a reward for serving God, both in this life by seeing people's lives transformed by the gospel, but there's also reward for eternity. And this is what Paul has in view here. It's clearly what he has primarily in mind. Paul speaks of a crown laid up for him. Laid up for him. I think that that also points us to the source is not his own labors, but God's grace. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. It really reminds us of what Peter said about our inheritance in First Peter. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, what does it say, kept in heaven for you. It's laid up. It's laid up for me. What is the crown? In verse 8, a crown of righteousness. It's a laurel wreath. It's, it symbolizes victory, but it's, it's a crown of righteousness. So the question is, is this, Paul has labored and he's toiled, he's kept the faith, and he has accrued this pile of righteousness. And God places this pile of righteousness on his head and says, good job, Paul, you are righteous. Please tell me that's not how you view it. Because I'm pretty sure that we're familiar with the text from Isaiah 64, that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Or Philippians chapter 3, that he views them as dung. So what he's talking about is something far better than something he has attained for himself, but something that's been attained for him by another. Paul did not accumulate over the course of his life this, this reservoir of righteousness, because then we'd be celebrating Paul in heaven. Listen, forgive me. I don't want to break your heart when I say this. I'll try to say it gently. You hear unbelievers or people that believe a different gospel saying that they want to see the blessed mother in heaven. Um, that troubles me for their, their salvation. Um, and then I hear people that claim to know the gospel talk about, I can't wait to see my so-and-so in heaven. I understand the sentimentality. So I, don't, I know you're not going to like this. I don't, I don't mean to be callous. The first thing you look for in heaven shouldn't be like your husband or your wife or your grandmother or your sister. I want to see them. I, I, I love that we'll be together. But someone that knows the gospel and, and, and is thinking clearly about the gospel wants to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus because he's all my righteousness. Without his righteousness, I have none. Without his righteousness, I'm condemned to hell forever. What, what are we thinking? We, we think, think before you speak. Think before you act. Think before you communicate things that are, that are wrong. We're not going there to celebrate Paul or Moses or Peter or James or John or any of the disciples. No. Will they be there? Yes. Praise God. I'm glad they're going to be there. Will you be there? Yes. I'm glad you're going to be there. I look forward to seeing you there. You'll be perfect. You'll see me for the first time and I'll be complete without sin and, and flawless. I, I want you to see me that way. But that's not the crown. The crown 
shows forth him. The crown that was spoken of, I believe, wholeheartedly was won by our Lord Jesus Christ and is awarded to believers as if they had accomplished it themselves. But we all know, and we all will know, whose righteousness it really is. The crown of righteousness is his. And we get to receive it. Paul says, this is laid up for me, this crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Who gets this crown? Who will be righteous forever? Every believer. Hmm. Every person who is redeemed through the gospel, we proclaim, gains the ultimate prize. The ultimate prize. How how can you be so sure? Well, Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 20. He talked about going out and getting some laborers, bringing them to the field. They agreed to to, to work for a denarius. And then at the third hour, he went and grabbed some more. And then the sixth hour, he grabbed some more. And the ninth hour, he grabbed some more. And at the eleventh hour, he grabbed some more. And at the end of the day, he lines them all up. He starts with those at the eleventh hour and he gives them a denarius. Oh, this is going to be great. I can't wait to see what I'm going to get. A denarius, a denarius, a denarius, a denarius. The whole way through. Jesus is depicting something because this is not actually going to happen, folks. Not like this. Because no one's going to be in heaven saying, Oh, you serious? This is all I get. There's not going to be one person saying that. So it's a parable. Don't read too far into the details. Here's what he's trying to communicate. And he tells you, the first will be last at the beginning and the first will be last at the end. And it's bracketed. The last parable and then this one is ended. The first will be last. The last will be first. What he's telling us is, it's not about when you get there, how you get there. Guess what? Thief on the cross? Crown of righteousness. What? He didn't do all the things that I did. You're not going to think like this. You think like this now. When you're in heaven, you're going to be thinking about Jesus. You'll have the mind of Christ. The vile parts of you, in every way, will be gone. You'll be transformed into his glorious body. You're going to be like him, for you'll see him as he is. All this other stuff is going to be gone. All the comparisons, comparing yourselves among yourselves, that is not wise. Why does it matter to us in the realm of ministry that every believer, everyone that comes under the hearing of the gospel, that embraces the gospel by God's grace, that the Spirit makes them alive, they, they embrace the gospel, they know Christ, they're saved. Why does it matter to us that one day they also will get the crown of righteousness? Because it means that ministry is not for nothing. Ministry yields the ultimate prize, which is what? Christ being glorified in heaven forever on every believer that enters his presence. Why why do we do this? Because we want people to know Jesus. Ministry mandates sacrifice. We're poured out. Our life is coming to an end someday. Ministry is not about us. It's about the gospel. It's about God. It's about Jesus Christ. And ministry produces the ultimate Prize. It's not only to, those, to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Believers are not hiding like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Not hiding. That doesn't mean that believers don't ever think, oh, I, I hope that Jesus will wait until I get married. Or I hope that Jesus will wait until I have babies. We have these competing interests, and it doesn't make us not believers. 
It just makes us, hey, I want to do one more thing. I want to accomplish one more thing before Jesus comes back. This is normal. We struggle with, with desires of earthly things. It does mean, however, that we know that there will be nothing better than seeing our Savior face to face. To be finished with this sinful flesh which we war with. What part of the race are you in? The first third? The second third? The third third? Where are you at? Remember this. No trophy for winning game three in a seven-game series. Finish. Finish it. Finish the race. Not your race. Not your course. Not your fight. Not your ministry. Not your faith. His. Let's pray. Father, we need you and we want you. Do your work in us. Enable us, give us desire and will and ability to finish what you have started. We know that you will not stop until it's finished. In Jesus' name, amen.